Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. For those who've been with us for a long time, welcome back. And for those who are catching Paddling the Blue for the first time, thanks for listening. We're glad you found us. Today's episode is going to feature Calvin Kroll sharing the beauty of a winter circumnavigation of Vancouver Island. So enjoy today's episode with Calvin Kroll. Welcome, Calvin. Thanks for joining Paddling the Blue today. Great. It's, it's nice to be here. I appreciate you joining me. So tell us a little bit about Calvin Kroll. Well, you know, I grew up on the East Coast. Uh, I grew up in Connecticut on Long Island Sound. And for a long time, I never really did much with the ocean. I spent a lot of time in the woods. During college, I was at college in upstate New York, and I started sea kayaking for the first time. And I immediately fell in love with it. I was on a fall break trip that I was invited to come along on, and it was 40 degrees and pouring rain. And there was something about being close to the water and watching all the raindrops hit around me that just uh, sparked something in me. And I knew this is what I want to do uh, in terms of outdoor pursuits. Uh, after that, I moved to northern Minnesota and started doing a lot of canoeing. I worked for the Outward Bound School there for a number of years and was canoeing through the boundary waters, but also sea kayaking on Lake Superior. And that is where I first started instructing paddle sports and learning the finer details of it and then developing myself and getting into different kind of award schemes and things like that to improve my own paddle sport instructing and coaching. So from there, it was a move to Texas for a little bit, and I did some whitewater canoeing on the Rio Grande and some desert backpacking, and then up to Washington, which is where I live now, and I've been living in the San Juans for a few years, and it's a fantastic place to be in a sea kayak. So Lake Superior, so uh, so Great mm -hmm. Lakes, that's my playground as well here. Mm -hmm. So some of your favorite Great Lakes areas? Definitely my favorite Great Lakes area is the stretch for between Silver Islet and Rossport, right. uh, Ontario, up there. It's a pretty, I don't know if you paddled that area, it's a pretty remote uh, coast series of kind of archipelagos that are out there in the lake on the northern side. I also really love the Slate Islands, uh, which is right about at the northernmost part of Lake Superior. It's about a seven mile crossing to get out to, but it is worth it. It's just an amazing tucked away place. It's a provincial park that is not manned by any ranger staff. Um, and there's caribou herds out there. So, yeah. Yeah. So Zach Cruzens um, was one of my uh, earlier guests, and he's a Thunder Bay resident. And so oh, that, great. Uh, Silver Islet, Rossport area is, uh, is his mm -hmm. playground. Oh, it's, it's amazing. So we're here to talk a little bit about your winter circumnavigation of Vancouver Island. So tell us a little bit about that trip. What brought that about? Well... To be honest, what started this whole thing was a conversation in August at the end of a warm day, sitting at the bar after having taught a kayaking class. Uh, we'd often go just to have it, and coworkers had said, well, you know, when are you going to paddle around Vancouver Island? It's something that a lot of folks that have been connected to the kayaking school I was working at had done. And I said, well, I'm, I'm just too busy to do it. I mean, we have all these classes day after day during the summertime I, I guess i'll have to do it in the winter and we all kind of laughed and it was a bit of a joke but i kept thinking about it and later that fall i started looking and going wait a minute is this is this possible because i really was curious could it be done i knew that there were a couple people who had attempted it in prior years but no one had actually completed the journey that i could find a record of and so I started really digging into, okay, is this even possible? So how long was the trip? The trip lasted for 47 days. I left from Orcas Island, which is where I live, and came back to Orcas Island. There was a good number of weather days in there where I couldn't paddle or I took a break, but uh, 47 total. Okay. All right. And, uh, and what kind of mileage or kilometers, however you're measuring? Sure. Uh, I, I measured everything in nautical miles as I went. Most days would be about 20. That was kind of the most common mileage in my log. Uh, some days were as short as seven, uh, and some days were as long as 44 nautical miles. I mean, I've got a 
audience for the for the podcast is a worldwide audience so not everybody knows what the landscape is like there in vancouver island we've seen pictures of it and everything but tell us a little bit about it sure well vancouver island's kind of unique because it's a fairly large size island it's just north of the u.s border and where it's situated is that the west coast is completely exposed to the pacific ocean so it is big swell and kind of dramatic windstorms rolling in off of the Gulf of Alaska, and that's the west side of it. And then on the eastern side of the island, you're looking up into the Canadian Coast Range, which is a bit of an extension of the Cascades from the U.S., and there's, so there's big snow-capped peaks that go on for hundreds of miles, and all these small waterways that interconnect, and there's a lot of strong tides that run through all those. Um, that come from either side of the island, kind of meeting in the middle of that backside of the inside. The island itself uh, is pretty mountainous in the middle, and it's also fairly steep beaches, rocky outcrops, a lot of areas with just fields of rocks and boomers, and a lot of long stretches where there's no access to the coast by people. So you get very long wilderness stretches as you kind of go along, especially on the outside of the island. So why did you choose to do this trip in the winter? Well, I wanted a challenge. And I had been paddling for my job full time for multiple years. And I knew that I could do it in the summertime, which is when most people do it. Most people travel counterclockwise around the island and they do it in July and August. And... I really was keen on trying to see if I could push myself and find out if it was possible to do this trip in the winter. I knew that it would really make me have to focus on every last detail of the trip to make it possible uh, in order to be able to pull it off. Everything from learning how to predict weather accurately, how to assess risk and if it was a good idea to go or not, to even just dealing with the extremely short days and all of the precipitation, and also the bigger sea conditions that you encounter in the wintertime out on the Pacific. So let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, the average temperature in um, on Vancouver Island is around 40 degrees Fahrenheit in January. So what is it that made a winter trip so much more challenging than a summer trip? You know, there's a few different things. One of the biggest challenges that I felt right from the beginning was the lack of daylight. We're pretty far north, and so... I would be getting on the water at you know 7.30 or 8 in the morning when it was barely getting light and having to get off the water by 3 o'clock in the afternoon or 3.30 because there's just so little daylight to work with. One of the funny things about this trip was because I was heading north and west, even though the days were getting slightly longer each day, my sunset time remained pegged at 8 o'clock every day because as I would go north and west I would lose those minutes and so I would just keep getting the same kind of groundhog day sunset sunrise all the time <laughs> um, which I hadn't you know really considered and it was several weeks into the trip when I was like this is just strange my it keeps telling me that the sun's going to come up at eight o'clock tomorrow and that was why I finally figured out so just having to work with an extremely small window in which to do things which means that sure I have you know, a decent number of hours to travel in, but every bit of camp in the morning and every bit of camp in the evening is going to happen in the dark. So just kind of getting yourself to get up and do that every day was a pretty good challenge on this trip. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing about outside coast, which I did first on the trip, was that the sea is enormous in January there. And that's just really big rolling waves to deal with. Um, it means that you have to paddle very far from shore because when the swell's that big, it just crashes through the rocks and a lot of the beach breaks. And there's no safe way to traverse that in a sea kayak. And so I would have to paddle one to two miles off the shore consistently throughout the day just to be able to get from place to place safely and then find a little safe you know, channel or harbor to come into. And so... You know, big conditions, which can be quite intimidating and be pretty scary at times, coupled with having to be offshore, which means you have to really navigate carefully and be able to stay in your boat for a long time and keep going. Uh, there were some days where I'd paddle for seven, eight, nine hours without getting out of the boat. 
And so that was, uh, you know, physically challenging and mentally challenging as well. So now um, you mentioned that there's long stretches of coast that are um, not, not landable. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that and how you, how you navigate and how you plan the trip. You know, to be honest, during the planning, I looked at the whole route around and figured out where there were campsites that were known, other places that looked like they might be possible, so I could have kind of places to be able to come in um, from the sea. But I didn't really plan past the first few days. And I just knew that between the weather changing and however my body reacted to paddling every day in the cold, I would just have to see how it went and make choices as I went along. So the planning process was really just knowing what towns I could buy groceries in along the way and knowing where at least some campsites, possible campsites were, and then deciding day by day what's a reasonable chunk to do for today and how do I feel and what's the weather, what's the sea condition, and trying to make a good decision about what risk was appropriate to take that day in terms of heading out there because I was on my own and that was another big challenge of this trip was that I didn't have anyone else to run decisions by yeah every night I would try to plan out the next day and then I'd sleep on it and look at the plan again in the morning listen to the weather again see if anything had changed and just have to make that decision about whether it was okay to head out into these big seas by myself out of curiosity do you have a preference for solo or group trips Oh, I really like both of them. I think for longer trips, I do prefer solo trips. Yeah, why is that? I find this partially on group trips, but even more so on solo trips. But when you're out for a long time, at some point, usually after a couple weeks or so, it just starts to feel like this is what life is. Like you're immersed in it in a way that you don't get when you just go out for a day paddle, even for like a couple nights as a short, you know, weekend trip. It just becomes what you are and what you're doing. And I really love that feeling. I get that on group trips, but even more so when I'm by myself, it just feels like this is my life and it's kind of laying out in front of me and this is what I do each day. And there's something magical about having that kind of singularity of purpose for a period of time. You mentioned uh, different camps, and uh, you mentioned when you were doing your planning process, you were finding known camp areas. What resources are out there to find that information? There are a couple books that have been written about paddling around Vancouver Island, some that have different stretches. I honestly can't remember the name of the ones I used right now, but there's a couple books that uh, written over different years that have good resources about that Uh, there's a another an almanac as well a boating almanac that shows where there's some camping sites one of the best resources though and i think is probably going to be the most up-to-date is the uh, british columbia marine trails association they have a website where they maintain trip reports and campsite reports for areas in all of british columbia and i did use that resource and that was quite helpful to find out hey is this site still there? Because maybe someone wrote a book in 1995 that says there's a campsite here, but that might not be the case anymore. So you mentioned you did a clockwise trip. I did. All right. Uh, is there why, why clockwise versus counterclockwise? Well, the kind of usual trip is, again, in the summertime, and you get a lot of kind of predominant northwesterly winds. And so most folks choose to go counterclockwise so that when they're coming down the west coast, they have those winds at their back. Because I was going in the winter, that semi-permanent high pressure over the Pacific Ocean disappears. And instead, you have these low-pressure systems coming in. And as they come in, you end up with strong southeasterly winds. So the strongest winds that I would encounter on the trip were going to be cold fronts coming in uh, with southeasterly winds. And so I looked at that and thought, well, I'm either going to have to have those with me on the outside or with me on the inside. And I just made the choice that having him out on the open ocean would be better at my back than fighting a headwind and dealing with the swell and the waves and everything like that. So tell us what you experienced along the way and how the trip changed as you uh, as you progressed. Sure. Uh, You know, I left here from an area I was very familiar with and paddled across a couple stretches I had paddled before, camped on a sunny, quiet island on January 1st when I had left. And 
you know, the next day I, I paddled off over the Canadian border and everything was new. I started heading out the Strait of Juan de Fuca, which is the boundary between Vancouver Island and the Olympic Mountains in Washington. And as I kept going out, I started getting the feel of more and more exposure. And so that was really the first part of the trip was just getting out there and learning about what it felt like to paddle in these conditions, in these big conditions. As I went up the coast, there were three different peninsulas that were kind of crux points along the way. And each of those had their own challenges and their own kind of epic days to get around. <laughs> but th I think the first part of the trip largely was getting out there and learning what it felt like to be out in the ocean. The second part of the trip was learning to get over my own fear of being out there in these big conditions and knowing that I was going through a risk assessment process and I was making the best decisions I could and that I was going to be okay if I stuck to that. And then the last part of the coast was when I realized that it was all working and that was very freeing and I really enjoyed my last week uh, out on the coast and kind of paddling around Cape Scott and coming around the inside. After that, some of the big scary parts of the journey were over, but not some of the hardest. And that really was a surprise too, because once you get on the inside, now I was facing those winds as a headwind. Also, there was a section for many, many days where the tide was never at my back. And so I had current coming against me. I had strong headwinds coming against me. And it also was a lot colder. So my booties were freezing every morning. I'd get some snow occasionally. My water bottles would freeze. Just more of the more bitter cold to deal with on the inside where that cold air comes off the Canadian mountains. So the last stretch coming down the inside passage really was more about taking care of myself and mentally staying in it. I'd already done all this hard, amazing things that, you know, really <laughs> was, I couldn't believe it at times that I had been able to do it but now I had to really keep working super hard to get home and that part of the trip was its own challenge just the cold and my hands were really torn up with blisters at that point and grinding out miles against a headwind and a tide coming against you day after day so let's break that down. You mentioned three different uh, three different sections, the kind of getting sure. out there and getting yourself comfortable. And then mm -hmm. the second phase, kind of getting over the fear of being out there. And then the mm -hmm. third phase being you realizing it's all working. So tell us about the, the getting out there phase. The getting out there phase was pretty delightful because, again, every I'd never been at any of these places. And so every day I was seeing something brand new. I was going down the coast and starting to feel little bits of swell. I started seeing sea lions and then I started seeing more and more sea lions. And then, you know, one day, I think about a week in, all of a sudden there's a colony of sea lions with hundreds of them sitting there on this big rock barking. And it's just incredible to, to see that. Um, and as I went out, I had to learn w what was going to be a safe condition to paddle in and what wasn't. When was it going to be possible to get to the beach? reasonably and when was it not and that's that's hard to judge from the sea sometimes when you're looking at the backs of waves often we're used to launching from a beach on the coast and looking at the waves and kind of judging okay how's the timing can we do this but every time i paddled somewhere i was looking at the backs of the waves going into the shore and having to learn to judge from that perspective in a place i'd never been before is this going to be an okay landing or am I going to totally get tossed on the way in and am I going to make it, you know? As, as you talk about those kinds of things, the whole area basically from day two on sounds like it was all brand new to you. Yeah, everything. Okay. All right. So you hadn't had the opportunity to really explore the island outside of the, the main base where you were at. Well, I've been on the U.S. side in Washington in the San Juans. And so I knew the San Juans quite well at this point. But this was all new territory going out, uh, crossing the border to Canada and making my way around the island. Now you're getting out there. You're starting to feel comfortable with the, uh, with the area. What was it that prepared you to, to do this trip? There were a few pieces. In terms of the actual paddling, what had prepared me largely was I'd been training for years um, with the American Canoe Association and with the BCU, the British Canoe Union, learning to coach and 
learning to lead in progressively more advanced environments. So I'd spent a lot of time going out and surfing on the shore and playing in tide races in a sea kayak. So I knew how to maneuver. I knew how to get where I wanted to go. And that, you know, that was a big part of being able to safely travel in these waters in northern Minnesota. I led trips year round. And so this would be paddling in the summer, but also, you know, paddling slash dragging canoes across the ice in the springtime (laughs) and dog sledding trips in the winter in the deep, deep cold of the northern winter when it was 30 to 40 below at night and you're camping out on the ice. Um, And so I knew how to manage my own personal systems, how to stay warm, how to keep myself dry, how to keep myself well fed throughout that and putting all those things together and having them inside the sea kayak and how to how every day really I had to end the day warm and well-fed and decently happy and if I could accomplish that then I could keep going on the trip you know it really didn't matter how far I got that day what mattered is was I taking care of myself and those kinds of expedition skills I really learned leading the trips route were bound for years and years. So now you've gotten comfortable, you're starting to get out there. Now you've got to get to that second phase where you're starting to get over the fear. And was it related to the conditions or what that was the fear? Oh, absolutely. The second phase and the, f- where, it, you know, I said getting over the fear, I'm really talking about there's three major peninsula headlands to get around. And, you know, the first one I went around was a day that I had to be paddling for nine hours straight. The swell was immense that day, and there was nowhere to land. So I was trying to get into a safe harbor, and I realized that the tide table wasn't correct and that the ebb current had already started flowing against me. So I could see where this corner I needed to get around but, oh, boy, it was hard to get there. <laughs> and, you know, after paddling for nine hours straight in very big conditions that have been scaring me all day, it was one last hurdle to get over. And I made it, luckily. And I think that I realized that evening that this is there's just genuine risk out here that is uh, that I'm having to choose to go into. There's no way around it. It's January, I'm in the middle of the west coast of Vancouver Island, and I knew I had two more of these kind of crux points to get around. And it was scary, to be honest. It was really tough to decide, should I keep going? And I spent the better part of the next week really wrestling with that question. Is this just a bad idea? Should I quit? You know, I'm coming up to a town, a place that has access to a boat. Should I call it and say, you know what, this is this is just too much and it's a better idea to go home and go home safe and warm um, rather than keep risking it. And so how far into the trip were you at that point? At that point, it was about two, two and a half weeks in. Okay. And kind of right in the middle of the coast, right after, this is after the Hesquiet Peninsula, uh, Estevan Point. That was that nine hour really long day. And that made me question everything. It scared the heck out of me and it was... Yeah. And I also, I started having a little bit of a repetitive stress injury in my forearm where I could feel that I was just sore every day. So I was also trying to answer the question, am I hurting myself? Is this a bad idea? Because I want to be able to keep paddling (laughs) and, you know, for a long time, I don't want to have a a bad injury from this trip and thinking about, can I manage that as I keep going in these conditions? How'd you make the choice to overcome that? You know, I had stopped at this little fishing village called Kiyukit that is in the middle of nowhere. And I was able to make a phone call. And I called a friend of mine who I'd worked with for years at the Hour Bound School. And I said, I just need to run by you what's going on. You know, what are your thoughts? You, you, he hadn't heard from me in a long time. But uh, I knew he could give me at least an outside objective perspective. And we talked for a while. And... He kind of just told me what he was hearing me say and uh, that, you know, really it was up to me. It sounded like I have, yeah, I have, I'm sore, but I have ways to manage it. And the question is, do you want to keep going? And I thought about that overnight and I realized I really do. And you know what? I'm going to, I'm just going to keep going until it's obvious that this is not something 
that I could do. It was almost like I was looking for a way out because it was such a hard trip. Um, and I was kind of looking for a, an excuse to be able to remove myself from that kind of suffering day in and day out. And I realized that I would regret it if I didn't at least keep trying and see what was possible. And maybe I wouldn't make it still, but I wanted to know that I tried as much as I possibly could until it was obvious that I couldn't. So you were initially hoping that your friend would give you an out. I think so. I, 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 cause it was, to be honest, you know, I'd been going for, I think at that point it was probably three weeks when I got to Kukit and that's just a long time to be paddling almost every day and big miles and being scared in a lot of those days <laughs> and starting to feel injured. And I, I, I think I was, and, uh, I'm glad that he didn't try to persuade me one way or the other. He just said, well, here's what I'm hearing you say. And it's up to you, you know, you have to choose if this is something worth doing. So when you when you're talking about being scared and the, and the conditions, so tell us uh, about the scale of the conditions and how those conditions were relative to what you're normally comfortable paddling in. Sure. I enjoy going out in pretty wild and rough conditions uh, in general. And I did a lot of paddling in strong winds to train for this trip and in strong currents and tide races. Um, in terms of what I was encountering, though, uh, like I said, I was regularly paddling in swell that was between three and five meters. And that's just kind of the measured swell. Often you'll get those big sets that come that can be twice as big as what you're seeing. And so there were days when I was seeing some of the big sets were the size of a house. And you see that swell come and roll under you, like a two-story house. And you get up on top of it and you have to look around because that's your chance to actually observe all the landmarks around you and do your navigation. And then you drop back down and you're in a big trough where you can't see anything. And so that's the kind of condition that I was paddling in on the coast a lot. And that's why I'd say it was uh, scary because not only is it just like, wow, this is huge out here, yeah. <laughs> um, but you can hear everything hitting the shore and echoing sometimes off of the rock faces when these big waves crash. Um, and so you know that you can't go that way. Uh, and you also, like I said, are trying to navigate and you only get these brief moments to navigate. And I think that was a huge part of the challenge that I hadn't anticipated was that, oh, I'm only going to get a couple seconds at the top, you know, a few seconds at the top of these big waves to actually look around and maybe take a compass bearing or make sure I know where I am in reference to the chart. And then it's going to disappear again for a while. And that was, that was really tough because I had to basically keep track of the landscape and where I thought it was in my head. I couldn't actually see it around me most of the time. I only saw it for a few seconds at a time as I got to the top of a wave and then drop back down. So how did you ever find a place to, well, either launch or land with spell like that? Sure. The beautiful thing about Vancouver Island is if you look at the coastline, it is full of little bays and little nooks and crooks and like deep water passages that you can go in and then hook around a corner into a bay. Um, it's not a big, long, sandy coastline like, say, in Oregon or in Washington, southern Washington um, or California. It really is just so many little waterways going in. And so you could jump, kind of find a place to launch from one of those more protected, deeper harbors, come out, and then find another one to sneak into. There were definitely some times I had to land in the surf. And so I would try to get behind different rock features and things like that and sneak in. Uh, but that's really what made it possible was that the coast has all those little, you know, safe holes to go hide in. <laughs> So tell us about Hot Springs Cove. Hot Springs Cove itself is a pretty amazing spot, and it's uh, fairly representative of a lot of the coast from right when you come out of the strait all the way up past Tofino. And what I mean is there's just really ancient giant trees. There's cedars and firs that are just far, far bigger than you could put your arms around, towering in the woods. And they are often propped up on their roots because they grew as little seedlings on a big nurse log, an old tree that had fallen, and then their seed took root on it. Um, and as that log rotted away, their roots, which had come down the outside of that nurse log, stayed. So they almost look like they're up on stilts. And there's places where you can almost walk into 
the roots there because it's, it's so tall from where the nurse log used to be. And everything is just thick, dense brush and covered in moss. Just moss everywhere as it's all soaking up the water and the rain. And it's just endless green, vibrant color all around. And so Hot Springs is that kind of environment. It's right where this lush forest meets the edge of the landscape and the sea takes over. And so the trees are always kind of perched right on the edge of these little rocky cliffs and outcroppings and the ocean is eating away at that edge. And so you'll see just roots and soil kind of sticking out everywhere over the edge as this forest, which is you know massively accumulating biological material and trying to grow and grow reaches to the edge and then the sea comes and chips away at it and claws it back and then the forest you know grows back a little closer and then the sea takes it away it's kind of this balancing act this just this line in the landscape where everything is coming back and forth between the erosion of the sea and the piling up of material that is life in this lush forest Hot Springs itself also is unique because there are hot springs there, as the name implies. And so you can hike from the campground down towards the end of the peninsula, and you end up wandering into this little kind of grove where all of a sudden there's steam and mist in the air, and you can hear these springs uh, trickling down, and there's natural pools on different levels that are full of this incredibly warm water. Um, and so you can go sit there in some of these pools and soak in the warm water. And it was a real treat to be able to soak in a pool while looking out as these massive waves were coming by into the cove <laughs> and just have a view of that there. And some of the they people had over time built up with rocks some other pools further down towards the sea, but all of those just got blown out by the waves and the storm coming in. So I wasn't able to enjoy those bigger pools down below where the seawater often comes in. Um, but I was able to soak up higher in the hot springs, which was nice. For me, I went there knowing that I was going to get stuck. Uh, I saw the weather forecast. There's this big storm coming, and I thought, well, I can make it one more day. So I, I was actually in Tofino resupplying at the city there, and I left. And I was like, I better get a jump on it and go sit at this place and wait for my chance to go around the peninsula. I got there, and I knew that, okay, this I'll be here for a little while, let's see what happens. And I set up camp, and that was fine. I could hear the wind picking up, and I went to bed. And when I woke up the next morning, I went and took a look around. I walked out to the dock there, and there was a 70-foot fishing trawler sitting on the dock. And uh, I went over and chatted them up, and they said, yeah, it's too big for us out there. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is really quite a storm. And over the next few days, the waves built to what ended up ended up being record-breaking heights there on the west coast of the island in Tofino. There were days when I was seeing forecasts for 11-meter swell and just watching massive waves come through and come way up into the cove even and just really, it was pretty amazing. I'd hike down over to the end of the peninsula and stand there and watch the weather come in. Uh, it wasn't just the height of the waves, but it was also hurricane force winds that were out in the ocean. And so I was seeing gusts, you know, 70, 80 miles an hour kind of thing. Uh, and I sat there and waited, and it was six nights that I ended up camping there, waiting for this storm to go by. So you get beyond the fear piece of it. Mm -hmm. You get to the third phase, which is it's all working. Tell us about that and how that felt. I'd say this part started when I got around the second of the three crux points. Uh, it's called the Brooks Peninsula. And again, I had to wait a couple nights for a chance to go around it that the weather would clear up. The Brooks is kind of special because not only does it stick far out, it sticks about 10 miles out into the sea. And it's pretty clear on a chart of Vancouver Island because it's like a little thumb sticking out about halfway up the island. It's not just that it sticks out there, it's also very mountainous. And so the winds funnel by it, and it's kind of a legendary local spot of, like, it's always windier out on the brooks, and it's always bigger out there. And in the winter, the actual Pacific current comes in and comes by the brooks and adds to the tidal current as well. So there's a lot going on out there. And the day that I set out to go around it, I was paddling down the peninsula, and things were getting rougher, things were getting choppy. I was getting waves kind of from two directions, 
very feeling unsteady in the kayak. And I knew I had to make a choice that either I go for it or I turn around and wait longer. And I thought about it and I thought about these big picture things happening with the weather and the current and the wind. You know, at the time, again, it was a little scary with what was right in front of me, but I knew I put it together in my head and I thought, you know, up there ahead, it's going to get better because of the wind's going to line up with the current and the seas are going to smooth out and this is going to become a much easier day. And so I made the choice to keep going, knowing that I wouldn't be able to go back after that. And I kind of launched myself out around the first point and turned the corner. And sure enough, the sea smoothed out a bit. And the wind, I turned the corner and the wind lined up in my back. And I just went flying down the face of the peninsula. And when I finally got to where I was going to camp that night, I was just, you know, full of I don't know a lot of things, <laughs> but it was it was just an amazing feeling to know that hey, like I understand it, I I get it out here now, and I can make good choices based on what I know uh, is happening in the world around me, and that feeling just kind of carried me through the next chunk, and just that oh this is again it's all working, I'm able to make safe choices and it's going to it's going to be okay. I just got to keep doing what I'm doing and going through the process every day and working hard at it and I'll get there. And so the next week after that, I just kept going and made it up around the north end of the island. All right. So that confidence that you built around the uh, the Brooks Peninsula in both your decision-making skills and your paddling abilities helped you with the third crux point. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that one ended up being more built up in my head than anything because people had told me it's really tough. It can be really tough. You know, beware. It says it in all the books. Beware. And so I kind of did the same decision-making process, found a day and the right time with the tide and a good weather forecast. And the <laughs> I think my favorite part of that experience is I went around and I came in to land and uh, I thought, okay, I better get my helmet back on. There's a, it looks like I'm going to have one more tough surf landing here on the coast because I was looking at this beach and it was far, kind of far away, but I could see the waves and I could see these big, you know, white curlers coming over. And I thought, okay, this is going to be one last tough one. And I kept going in towards shore and kept going in. And by the time I got near the beach, it turns out that there was something about the flat light in my perspective, but these waves were knee high. And... <laughs> I thought I was in for, you know, a total thrashing and uh yeah, and I just laughed one. laughed my way all the way onto the beach, the the easiest landing of the trip probably. <laughs> so <laughs> So now you've come around the uh, the end of the island. Now you're in the inside. So tell us how things changed on the inside for you. You mentioned earlier uh wind in your face and then that, but well, what else changed for you? One of the big ways that it changed on the inside of the island is all of a sudden instead of having you know the wide open ocean on one side there's land and fairly narrow channels and as you look down the channels you'll see these big snow-capped mountains as they reach into the coast range of the BC interior and they were just seemingly endless You'd see, and they were all shades of blue and purple kind of receding off into the day it was really just like a long corridor that you knew you could explore down and as I paddled I was on kind of the main track along the island but you keep seeing these side shoots and it was uh, really amazing to think oh I could come back and someday maybe paddle down that one or paddle down that one it was it looked just looked like an endless maze of mountains and water to go explore I think part of what changed is that I started really liking the challenge and I was just biting into it every day and chewing on it and going oh this is good this is what this trip is, and it's a different one now, different challenge, but it feels really good to lay in your sleeping bag at the end of a long day and be dead tired, but know that you can do it if you just work at it bit by bit, and at the end of the day, you're just this really good tired. That return uh, section of the trip, that was another two, three weeks? It was two about two weeks. It took me a little over a month to go up the West Coast, and it took me about two weeks to come down the inside. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, if you've got a wind in your face for much of that time, what made that enjoyable? Because I didn't have to worry so much about the navigation and, you know, tracking every rock that a big boomer wave might go off on or where am I getting uh, drifted to. And 
how far from shore I am. Am I like all that kind of thing fell away. And it really was more of just like, Hey, I'm going that way. And I'm going to, I'm going to paddle for it. And so I think I enjoyed that change quite a bit. And I also, I felt like I could just see the scenery more, could watch the birds skitter across the water more intently because I didn't have to focus just on the immediate surroundings and the sea yeah. as much. You're no longer uh, gripped and, uh, and trying to figure out how to you know, preserve your life. and you're <laughs> Yeah, and I guess, I guess a simpler way to say it is uh, there wasn't as much to be scared of anymore. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, and part of that was just because I knew what I could deal with, and now it was a very different set of conditions. Still tough, but yeah, not not making you uh, <laughs> tremble in your seat sometimes. <laughs> so. so tell us about the wildlife experience. Oh, sure. I was amazed by the sea otters. It was by far my favorite part of the trip. They would just be out there, out in the swell, and out in the kelp beds, and as you came into different bays, they'd be around there and kind of just so at home in the water. I remember being out in really big swell, intently focused on some obstacle I had to get around. And I realized, oh, there's a sea otter here just floating around in the waves next to me, happily hunting for its food and being out in the middle of this chaos. And it was just really cool to see. I actually, a couple times on foggy days when I was out kind of doing a crossing, I would be able to sneak up on them and I'd be paddling along and they wouldn't notice I was there until I was right next to them. And they would just be floating on their backs with their paws clasped on their chest and their eyes closed, just bobbing up and down in the swell and looked like they were napping, you know? <laughs> so I really, I really enjoyed that. I also encountered some wolves while I was out on the coast. Oh, that's rare. And that was, yeah, it was a pretty special experience uh there's some wolves that are closer to tofino on vargas island that are more used to people and are kind of a nuisance in a way i mean people have habituated them and that's part of the problem but uh further up on the coast after the day after the brooks actually i landed and i dragged my boat up the beach and i was standing there looking back at the sea and all of a sudden i heard a wolf howl and it was yards from me it's just one of those things where if you like you heard your neighbor's dog howling across the fence you'd know how close it was it was right there and i turned around and i could not see anything and then i heard another one howl from a different direction a little bit further away but still very close by and then another one from another direction and i just realized i'm surrounded by wolves at this campsite <laughs> and it was getting dark it had been another really long exhausting day and i knew that well, I'm certainly not getting back on the water right now. Um, so I'll just have to let them know I'm here and hang out with the wolves for the night. And uh, I did. I, you know, I talked out loud a lot as I made camp and maybe sang a few songs to myself and just tried to let them know, like, hey, I'm here. I'm on this little space near the shore. I know this is your home. And um, when I woke up in the morning, there were wolf tracks everywhere around where I had cooked my dinner around my boat not far from my tent and they clearly had come and just checked me out all night but they didn't want anything to do with me i guess so right. they let me be and i let them be and then i carried on the next day <laughs> that's a good thing yeah how about other wildlife encounters a lot of sea lions and up close too the inside passage actually ended up being where i saw more sea lions than i could have thought possible as I was coming back down towards the San Juan Islands and the Gulf Islands, uh, the herring run had started and the sea lions feed on this. And so they would be out floating in the middle of these channels, all spread out, just kind of hanging out, waiting for a time to fish. And there were hundreds of them. And there were a series of days for about a week where I just, they have marine protection our marine mammal protection laws where you're supposed to stay 200 yards away from seals and sea lions and kind of give them their space and whales and it was impossible there was no way i could have paddled down any of these stretches and stayed 200 yards from a sea lion they were just everywhere and they would actually come and follow me for a ways i think they're a bit territorial and so I would, they, I'd get into an area and maybe some would come up and start barking at me, bark, 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 pretty, pretty aggressively. And they would follow me for half a mile, a mile, sometimes more. 
And then finally they turn around and kind of go back the way they had come from. At first it was a little nerve wracking, uh, but I realized that, okay, they're, they're just, you know, letting me know that I'm in their space and I need to keep going behind me and follow me for a while. <laughs> so it was really a, a kind of a unique end of the trip to have that many sea lion encounters uh, for, for days on end. So your favorite part of the trip, what was that? The last few days on the West Coast. Um, for the outside. For the outside. It's when I had gained enough confidence and I wasn't uh, scared anymore. I wasn't worried about it anymore. I'd been out for about over three weeks, and it was a kind of a a door opening to another another realm in a way where I was on the last few days and there was no one out there and I never even saw a boat and there were just long stretches of wilderness coastline. There was something that was just so heartbreakingly beautiful about being out there at that moment and by myself that it's really hard to put into words, but uh, it felt like I was living in a dream for a few days at that last stretch coming around the northern part of the island. And by far, that was what uh, I remember most from the trip. Sounds beautiful. So tell us about the people you met along the way. Did you get a chance to meet a lot of people? Sure. Along the way, there were a number of folks I met when I kind of would go into a town to resupply. I ended up uh, staying with Justine Kurgenman. Mm -hmm. um, she lives in Yukula. I stayed with her for an evening on my way. That was pretty early in the trip. I think that might have been day Oh, nine or something like that. <laughs> so, or eight or 10, I don't know, pretty early on. And that was great because her and her partner have many, many trips traveling in Vancouver Island and in BC in general. And so I was able to ask them questions and just get more local information about what I could expect as I progressed along the way. Um, so that was, that was super helpful. And they were very generous and very kind with their time. And it was so nice to have a warm place to sleep <laughs> for the night. And then honestly, you know, I didn't meet too many more people along the way. I met the lighthouse keepers at Cape Scott. I hiked up to the lighthouse and got to chat with them. Uh, BC is one of the last places in the world where lighthouses are manned and they have full-time resident lightkeepers. So it was pretty wonderful to get to talk with them. I mean, I, I hiked up the trail and they thought I had hiked in through the national park. And they when they realized I had kayaked, they were a little uncertain if I was telling the truth or not, <laughs> but they were pretty fun to hang out with for, for a little bit. Yeah. To be honest, I think that's part of the trip that made it feel extra solo as I didn't meet very many people. Um, I stayed with a couple folks along the way briefly for a night, but I don't know. It's, it's hard to feel like I've, I really met them, <laughs> right. you know? So for the most I, part you camped for the most most part I camped on the inside. I did stay with folks. And so they were very kind. I, I was actually amazed by the outpouring of offers from people who were, I was writing a blog as I went along. Every time I get to a town, I'd kind of put an update up there and uh, people would contact me and say, Hey, I live over, you know, in Albert Bay. Hey, I live over here. You should, you can stop by if you want on the way. And I took some of those folks up on that offer and it was, it was really nice. I, I wasn't looking to have it be a purely wilderness trip. Uh, it was more about the challenge of paddling and getting, uh, around the whole Island. And so it was really nice, especially at the end to have those places to stay. So aside from those places to stay, I know you were solo, but were you supported at all? No, I, I would just okay. paddle into town and resupply myself, find a place to stay for the night or a place to camp for the night there near town. Was the trip harder or easier than you expected? Both. <laughs> it was more mentally challenging than I had really anticipated, especially some of those uh, sections on the coast where I had to learn to deal with fear and how to manage that and while managing risk. In some ways, it was easier, far easier than I expected, because when you're on a trip like this, really, you're just in the day to day. And so, you know, I can get up and make breakfast and pack my tent and get my boat packed and paddle for a while and have lunch and paddle for a while. And, you know, when you're actually doing it, it just feels like you're doing it one day or even, you know, one mile at a time. And each of those tend to feel pretty 
uh, mundane in a way. You know, there's a lot of just making good choices and kind of plodding along. And when you're on the expedition, it doesn't necessarily seem miraculous. You know, it's more about coming to the end and then looking back and going, wow, that all really happened. Or running into people and them telling you, wow, you did that, <laughs> you know, uh, that makes it kind of come into focus. Because when you're in it, it really does feel, I wouldn't say boring, but just, uh, I don't know, it just seems like another day on the water. Uh, but it isn't until later on that you realize it was a bit more. Would you do it again? Uh no, <laughs> I don't. I, I don't. I, I think okay. I would. Uh, I'd actually really want to do the trip again in the summertime sometime um, just so I could see more places, have different conditions, be able to have more views. There was an awful lot of rain. Uh, that was another challenge of the trip. It rained at one point on the coast. It rained for 21 days straight. Folks have s said, oh, that's not really winter. It's not that cold. But it's like, yeah, but it rains every day. So you're just have the potential to be soaked if you don't take care of yourself really well and you do spend a lot of time feeling pretty soaked and so i'd love to do it in a different time of year and be able to maybe just not be as focused on getting somewhere next and enjoy the sights a bit more and revisit some of those places i'd been 21 days straight of rain what are your best tips for managing yourself and your gear there's two things that i found really crucial one was i had a very lightweight tarp that i would string up as soon as I got to camp. I actually kept it in a dry bag in front of my foot pegs. And as soon as I got somewhere I was going to camp and I found a site that would work, I would grab that and set up the tarp. And then when I unloaded my boat, everything went right under the tarp um, so that it was minimizing the time out in the weather. And then I had the ability to set up my tent underneath there and then maybe move it out a little. It also served as a front porch in a way so that I could have room to change in and out of my dry suit. Uh, I could also cook out there sometimes if I needed to, if the weather was bad, and just provided that little extra bit of shelter because tents can be kind of small and cramped, but having that, that extra bit was helpful. And then in the morning, it would all happen in reverse, and I would pack everything up and get changed in my dry suit, and then the la you know pack the boat, and the last thing to come down would be the tarp. So I think having that extra bit of coverage is really important when it's very rainy. I also really push myself to dry out my clothes every day that's tough to do when you're not making fires you're just cooking on a camp stove so what that would entail was once my took my dry suit off i'd be pretty damp from both just being on the sea all day and sweating and what i would do is i'd put other warm layers on on top of my damp clothes and keep going about my business make sure i ate a lot of food and then wore those things to bed and your body heat will push the moisture out eventually. And so every morning I'd wake up with completely dry clothes. There were the moisture had been expelled out through the sleeping bag. Synthetic fabrics and wool is just absolutely amazing. And so I would go through that process every night, even though it was uncomfortable. And I would really, some nights I really wanted to grab those dry long underwear out of the bag and put them on. But I knew that if I did that, then my clothes would be soaking wet to get into in the morning. So... Yeah, drying your own clothes and using a tarp really help in the rain. So what would you recommend to others who are considering a circumnavigation or just a general paddle out Vancouver Island? I would say really look into the weather conditions, really look into the campsites and what's possible, what the landings are like, and just really consider your own skill level and comfort. The Inside Passage has some just amazing places that you can paddle along and there's strong current but you can manage that if you're good with the tide table but the outside is a significant challenge and it's not to be underestimated so i would say for folks to if they're looking to tra tra traverse part of it to really dig into those details and if they're looking to just go out and experience it there's a lot of really great places that you can paddle that are kind of groups of islands that are kind of together and you can tuck inside and travel around those smaller groups of islands and only expose yourself to as much as is reasonable for you. So I know you mentioned uh, the BC Marine Trails Association earlier, so we'll, oh, yeah. we'll make sure we get a link to that in the show notes. And um, you mentioned some resources that you weren't sure of those off the top of your head, but I'll connect with you offline. We can get some of those resources and we'll include those in the show notes as well. So folks okay. can, uh, can look up some of that information on their own and uh, find 
opportunities to paddle. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great place to paddle for sure. It's absolutely beautiful, and I'd say it's well worth the effort and the time to get out there. Favorite piece of kit under one hundred dollars? Hmm. Oh, my watch, hands down. Okay. I have a, a watch, an analog watch with a rotating bezel, and it is strapped to my PFD. And uh, in terms of being able to navigate accurately, you can turn the bezel, set the zero onto the minute hand, and then know exactly how long you've been paddling since you set it, especially when considering you know having to have an accurate read of where you are. I, I, I do all my navigation with charts, grease pencil, compass, and watch. And uh, I think the watch is the one thing that I couldn't reproduce uh, some other way. So that's the one piece of gear I always have with me when I'm paddling in order to have accurate navigation. All right. Can I add one more? Sure. What that tarp? You said that super lightweight tarp. Oh, yeah. You know, I was trying to remember how much it cost me. <laughs> it might have been $90. Uh, so maybe it's counts for under 100 But yeah, a sill nylon tarp is, oh, it's fantastic. And they, it packs down to about the size of a water bottle and weighs a pound, maybe. It's uh, really worth shoving that somewhere in your boat to have along. All right. I've also used it for a sunshade on trips that were not raining, but too sunny. So. <laughs> okay. Dual purpose. Yeah. Excellent. So what's next for you? Well, uh, I'm looking to do a trip with my wife. We're hoping to paddle from Alaska back here to Orcas Island. This will probably be about a three month long trip and we're just trying to find the right time to do it. So what are your, uh, what's your, what's your favorite area to paddle in your home waters? There's a set of three islands off the north shore of Orcas Island here in the San Juans. They're all state parks. They're Patos, Matia, and Susia Island, and they are all very unique in what it's like in terms of geology and plant life and what it feels like to be on them. But you can paddle out there and camp, and it's just beautiful. I love it every time I'm there. We always go out on a paddling trip around New Year's. We actually just got back from our kind of annual holiday paddling trip. And to go out to these little islands when no one else is there is really, really special. So I, I really love those here in the San Juans. They're, I think the, yeah, just the best destination in terms of paddling. There's a lot of places you can paddle here in the San Juan Islands, but those three are my favorite for sure. Sounds cool. So is there anything that we haven't touched on that you'd like to add? You know, I, I think that I get approached a lot when people hear about this trip and they say, that's just incredible. Wow. It's, it's so amazing. And I really, I appreciate that sentiment, but I think what people don't realize is that these kinds of trips are very attainable for a lot of different people. It's just a matter of figuring out what skills you need to develop, putting in the time to developing them, and then, you know, making the time to go on the trip itself. And I think back to when I started paddling in a sea kayak, those first few years out on the Great Lakes, I, I had no idea what I was doing. That paddler could not have done any of this. It'd be totally unreasonable. But I just knew that I loved it and I kept doing it. And I think that that's something that I hope people really understand that if you just keep putting time in, in the seat of your kayak and really paddle and push yourself a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, before you know it, you're going to be doing incredible things. Uh, that you never thought possible. Excellent advice. So, uh, Calvin, how can listeners reach you if they've got additional questions? Sure. There's a couple ways. You can take a look at my website, which is futurewaterpaddling.com. But the easiest way would be to just send me an email, and that's listed there on the website. Well, we'll make sure we get links to futurewaterpaddling.com, uh, as well as the other resources, and then uh, we'll talk offline if there's any, any other things we can add to, uh, to that list as well for our guests. It's been uh, it's been great talking to you today and learning about how you overcame the challenges and how you managed yourself and uh, how you got through things like 21 days of rain and uh, and your tips for that. So I certainly appreciate that. I do have one final question for you as we uh, begin to wrap up here. And it's a question that we ask of all of our guests on the show. And that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? I think it'd be fantastic if you're able to talk to Bill Vonnegut. He is down in Oregon on the Oregon coast, and he is 
just the spark of joy in sea kayaking out here in the west coast i feel like so if you can chat with him that'd be really great all right well i'll connect with you offline we'll get contact information for bill and uh see if we can get him on the show and, and get that spark of joy sure so, thanks again for the opportunity it's been fun learning from you and then uh, in hearing about your winter circumnavigation of vancouver island yeah no problem thank you very much for getting in touch sure if you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. What a beautiful trip. I loved his vivid descriptions of the landscape and his honesty regarding his ability to complete the trip. While he may not have had snow and extreme temperatures, he did have his share of adversity. 21 days of rain sounds kind of miserable. Um, Our next show is going to feature Greg Stamer, and Greg has a wide paddling resume from wing paddles to Greenland paddles with trips around the globe, including a circumnavigation of Iceland with Freya Hofmeister and winds of Florida's Everglades Challenge. And we'll be talking about Newfoundland during this conversation. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.